The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is a great reward. That in keeping them we have a reward here in the present that fits us for the reward to come. And we pray now that as we study it, meditate upon it, and come to know it better, that we might treasure it, that we might rightly understand it, that we might be led to a good fear of you, and that you might make wise the simple, which we confess we are. But teach us, we pray. Amen. Adam, over to you. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Let me just turn on my microphone. Good evening. Can you hear me? Great. Okay. Uh, a little bit of uh, trivia as we start. Um, in, um, in 1955, 50,000 copies of this book were sold. It now sells 3.5 million copies each year. It's translated in 370 different languages. Anybody know what book I'm talking about? No? No? No, it's not the IKEA catalogue. It's the Guinness Book of Records. The Guinness Book of Records. Do you know the Bible sold 428 million copies, um, so kind of fragments of the Bible, so the New Testament uh, and Gospels, 428 million copies, and 34 million copies uh, of uh, uh, the full Bible were sold last year. Isn't that incredible? It's translated in 1,521 languages. Incredible. What a great privilege we have of having uh, God's word open before us this evening. I hope that Bible Week so far has been an emotional experience for you, as well as a learning experience, that it's right that we feel moved as we consider the big story of the Bible, uh, that our hearts are actually warmed by what we're learning. We, you could say that we, we have an Emmaus experience. Would you look at Luke's Gospel with me? The end of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24. Let's start there as our first scripture tonight. And Luke 24, uh, Jesus has been meeting a couple of people on the road to Emmaus. And in verse uh, 26, um, Jesus says this, Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Down in verse 31, um, as they realized it was Jesus all along who'd been talking to them, um, they say, then their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning with us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Our hearts burn 
within us as we come to God's word. So far we've been thinking about the big story, that God is the creator of everything. We saw that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that he's the creator and we're his creatures made in his image. We saw the fall in Genesis 3 uh, and then we've seen that all through the Old Testament is this pattern of the kingdom coming, a little bit like the model helicopter that we've been thinking about. It's the model and the reality seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen it's not the real thing, the model kingdom, but it's a good picture of what it's going to look like. As we come to kind of this point here, that's the high point of the kingdom under King Solomon's reign. And there's, we've seen that there's various parts to the covenant and to the kingdom. And we saw that a king was going to come, and the king was going to come actually now through David's line. And he's the one that we're waiting for. For he will be the one who is going to be the serpent crusher. We saw that the kingdom split in two, and really the uh, decline of the kingdom. The kingdom slips away, uh, and it's beyond repair. Uh, it falls into anarchy as, as the people of God disobey and are thrown out of the land. And they have a return back into the land again. Mike touched on that uh, last night. Um, but it's nothing like it should have been. In fact, the people who remember the former things were distraught at it. Would you look uh, at Ezra chapter 3 with me? You'll find that on page 475 in your Bibles. 475. Ezra chapter 3 and verse 11. And those who were in the land that could remember back to the first temple, actually they're hysterical, they're weeping. Um, so from verse 11, with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, the temple has been rebuilt. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who'd seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Well, let's just kind of have a little think about um, what's what we've seen so far. In, in, in Genesis chapter 2, for those of you who've been here for the whole thing so far, who were God's people? Just shout it out to me. Who were God's people in Genesis 2? Adam and Eve. Great. Where was the place for God's people? Eden, the Garden of Eden. How do we see God's blessing and God's rule being worked out uh, in, in Eden? Yeah, they had rule over the creation. That's right. Um, and they're blessed by God. Remember God says that, that his blessings with them. Uh, blessed and multiply uh, and go out. And they enjoy rest in God's presence. Remember we saw that in the seventh day in Genesis 2. What about um, for Israel? Who are, who are the people in the history of Israel? Abraham's descendants. Absolutely, yeah. Where's the place for God's people? Where was the place? The promised land. Yeah, Canaan, the land of Canaan. 
Absolutely. And where do we see God's rule and God's blessing uh, in Canaan? Yeah, they had kind of victory over their enemies. Absolutely. What else? Yeah, they enjoyed the fruits of the land. They had peace in the land from their enemies. Absolutely. Do you remember they had a king ruling over them? They had the law uh, which, which they could read. Uh, they had the covenant. They were under the covenant that was brought in by the king. Rest from their enemies. Peace in the land and peace with God. Now we reach the New Testament. And the people is now Jesus. And the people are those who Jesus saves, those who are incorporated into Jesus. They become the new people. I wonder if anyone knows, the, um, knows British Sign Language. Mel taught me this today. She was at a, a class with Joel this morning, and they were talking about kind of sign language. And the sign in British Sign Language for Jesus is, is this. It's, it's like a, an ark over the head, and it reminds us of the Old Testament. So uh, in the ark in the Old Testament, the only safe place to get away from the flood was when the people were on board the ark. That's exactly the same now for us. The safe place for us is on board the ark. Jesus is the ark. He's the safe place who, who, uh, who saves us from the coming judgment. The people now are those who are in Christ. That is the people uh, who will be saved. Where's the place of God? Well, that's in Jesus as well, in his body. He is the new temple. Uh, he's the place now where you meet with God. Where Adam and Eve failed, where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. Where do we find rule and blessing now? Well, with King Jesus. Coming under his word through the gospel, through believing the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we finished yesterday uh, with the Old Testament, and really the, the promises were up in the air. They didn't really land. They're unrealized. They're met at one level, a little bit like the magic eye picture. Remember, we can see that first picture. Much harder to see uh, the second picture, the deeper picture uh, behind that. The people are awaiting the new kingdom the coming kingdom. And John the Baptist uh, rocks up on the scene, and he's a pretty weird-looking dude. Uh, he eats locusts and honey, lives in the woods by himself. He's the last prophet, but he's the forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then kind of cue the drum roll, and then um, we meet the one that we've been waiting for. The Christ comes. And everything that the Old Testament was speaking about finds its fulfillment uh, in Jesus. One of my uh, old vicars said this. He said five things about the Old Testament. One, the Old Testament tells the story which Jesus completes. The Old Testament declares the promises which Jesus fulfills. The Old Testament provides the pattern which Jesus fits. The Old Testament launches a mission which Jesus achieves. The Old Testament teaches ethical values which Jesus perfects and models and endorses. You see, what the Old Testament prophets did was this. They said, days are coming. 
Jesus says, the time is now. The time has come. It's a return to Eden. That's what the New Testament really is all about, the coming kingdom of Jesus. The New Testament says, this here now is that which was promised then. Do we see that? That is, what you're seeing in your midst is that which was promised uh, long ago uh, through the prophets and in the Old Testament. Sorry, Mike, I'm going to nick some of your material. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 4? Romans 4. And let's look at verse 16, page 1131. Romans 4, verse 16. And just think again, kind of, we'll be thinking about people, place, and blessing just for a moment. Romans 4.16. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Who are the people? All Abraham's offspring. He is our father in the sight of God. Who are the people? Well, it's the world now. It's gone kind of global. All of those who put their trust in King Jesus. Where's the place? Romans 4.13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Where's the place? Through the heir of the world, King Jesus. That's the place now where we're going to find blessing. What's happened to the promise? It's kind of like Genesis 12, but on steroids. It's gone global. The promise has gone to the ends of the earth. It's Abraham inheriting the whole world. And where do we find blessing? Well, just cast your eyes up. Uh, verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So crediting righteousness apart from works. That is, that we're made right now by God aside from doing good things. It's not about works. It's not about keeping rules. It's aside from that. It's a little bit like the person who comes into church to the front desk, the reception desk, and they're standing there and they say... Um, I've got no money on my electric. I haven't got any money in the bank. I'm kind of out. Uh, I need help. Uh, there's kind of no lights on at home. I can't even keep the fridge running. Uh, I need some money on my electric. They're desperate. They really need uh, our help. Can you credit my account? So uh, Mike or Jit or whoever it is will take them down to Tesco's, uh, into Tesco's Express, and pay money so money can go onto their electric. They've been credited. It's a gift that's been given to them. That's where blessing now is found. Look at verse 7 of Romans chapter 4. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man and woman whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That's where blessing is. Um, 
I've been thinking about this for about two weeks now. Um, and it's been a constant source of encouragement, so much so that when I was at St. Margaret's two weeks ago, I used this verse. When I was leading on Sunday morning, I used this verse again then. Blessed. This is where we find God's blessing. Sin's forgiven. Uh, sin's covered over. Sin the Lord will never count against us. That is true blessing. That is where we find happiness. Uh, look at Romans 5 and verse 1. And we see this comes through justification. Justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace or rest with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice. We're blessed. We're chuffed and happy people because of what God has done for us. What's the result of the gospel? Peace with God. Rest. Back in Genesis 2. Uh, we're back. Pre the fall. Uh, we were banished because of our sin. Now we're back in God's place. Access into the presence of God because of Jesus. Well, let's come to some of the material that I'm supposed to be looking at. Let's, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, why is John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 baptizing people in the desert? Why are the people in the desert at the beginning of Mark's gospel? Uh, verse 4, we see that. Uh, and um, the people are going out um, uh, to meet John. Well, I think it's because they're outside the place of God. That is, they're not in the land. They are still in the Exodus. Spiritually speaking, God's people are still in exile. They're still waiting for the ultimate rescue that the model pointed towards. The ultimate rescue. That is, there's going to be a greater rescue, a much bigger rescue. And the prophets have been piping up and they're saying, look, days are coming. Mark chapter 1 verse 15, Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. God's people are going to enter the place with King Jesus. And they're going to enjoy Jesus' rule and his blessing. And it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be incredible. Uh, and we are welcomed uh, into it. Well, let's, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to Mark. Let's go to Matthew um, as we start. I think Matthew chapter 1 is a bit of an unusual way to begin the New Testament. Um, don't, don't be shy, just kind of raise your hand with me if you've ever ducked Matthew chapter 1 in your quiet time. When you've been reading through Matthew's gospel, anyone ever ducked it? Yeah, I have too. Uh, it's quite a strange way to, to, to kind of begin the New Testament, but I want to argue that Matthew chapter 1 is the gospel. We need to know this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Don't worry, I'm not going to read on any more. But we see that the Christ is both the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham because the promises were originally given to Abraham. The promise was given to Abraham in Genesis 12. And we see the promise come into focus through David. 
He's a son in the sense that he's the heir to these promises that have been made. Matthew, in his genealogy, really here, is wanting to try and show us, look, Jesus is the one who has royal blood pumping through his veins. And Matthew's account really is very Jewish, uh, that Jesus uh, is to be seen in Matthew, really, as the new and greater Moses. Flicked through to Matthew chapter 5. Let's have a little look at this. Matthew 5 and verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Jesus' disciples come to him. He summons new Israel up on a mountain. It's very Moses-like, isn't it? It's very God-like. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of like Sinai. And Jesus then re-gives the law. Matthew 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago. Verse 22, but I tell you this. You've heard that it was said, Sinai, but I say to you this. Have a look at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus is like a new Moses. He's a greater leader, a greater teacher, one who teaches with authority, not like the teachers of the law. In Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses. And flick forward to the end of Matthew's gospel. Let's just briefly look at the Sermon on the Mount. And I wonder if we can spot any similarities here with the promises in Genesis 12. Well, I think it's, uh, we see the promise being for all the nations being fulfilled here in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice, too, where we're situated at this point. Uh, verse 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain. It's interesting, isn't it? On a mountain again, where Jesus had told them to go. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. So there's a word for the people on Sinai. Now there's a word here on another mountain, but to go out to the ends of the earth, to all nations, for the whole world. If this were a YouTube video, we'd say it's a video that's gone viral. It's going global and nothing can stop the gospel from spreading. Matthew, uh, his account is Jewish in flavor, I've said that, but it's Jewish the world over. It's to go out to everyone. Well, let's flick on to Mark's gospel. Mark was probably the earliest gospel that was written, uh, and it's probably from Peter's sermon notes that he took while he was with Jesus. And it's a gospel of two halves, isn't it? Uh, Mark's gospel. It's a kind of gospel in two halves. We've got Mark chapter 1 to chapter 8, dealing with who is Jesus, speaking about his miracles and kind of demonstrating the authority of Jesus over everything, over nation, over people, over sickness, over sin, over creation. Jesus demonstrates his authority. And the second half of Mark is all to do with why Jesus has come. What's Jesus' mission? And flick to this kind of hinge point in Mark's gospel uh, in chapter 8 with me. 
page 1012. And it's an extraordinary statement which we see a Jew making here. Peter says, uh, in reply to Jesus' question uh, in verse 29, Jesus says, um, What about you? He asked Simon Peter. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, A Jew answered this, You are the Christ. Isn't that incredible? Peter is saying the 2 Samuel 7 promises are being fulfilled in Jesus. You're the king that was to come. You are the Messiah that we've been waiting for. You're the promised Christ. You're the one who's going to break the rebel. You're the one who's going to give people a new heart and give them a new spirit, a spirit that's going to obey. You're going to move people deeply to follow you. And verse 31, he says, he then says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Here is the suffering servant predicted in Isaiah 52 and 53 that Mike was talking about yesterday. The kingdom of God is going to come and it's going to come through the cross. His kingdom comes through suffering and then to glory. And yet, for the kingdom to come in full, and finally, first of all, God's message needs to be preached to the ends of the earth. Flick forward to Mark chapter 13 and verse 10. Mark 13 and verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. For the kingdom to finally come in full, all the nations need to hear about King Jesus. What's the extent of the preaching? Well, it's got to go global. It's got to go everywhere. Flick on to Luke's gospel. Uh, again, Luke writes two volumes. He writes Luke and then he writes uh, Acts. Luke is the Acts of the Incarnate Christ. And volume two is the Acts of the Risen Christ. We see that uh, in, in um, the Acts of the Apostle. Uh, Jesus is risen um, and uh, he, he gives his spirit um, to the world to help them to follow Jesus. Now, I won't steal Mike's thunder on that because that's coming next. But look with me again at Luke 24. We're just going to look at the end again. And uh, look at verses 45. Uh, to 47 with me because we need to see that the gospel needs to go out to the nations before it's going to come in in full uh, page 1062 in your Bibles then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures he told them this is what is written the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Well, we know that that being clothed on power from on high is going to mean the Spirit coming, and that's picked up on uh, later. So what is the kingdom? It's the death of King Jesus. 
It's the death by, by means people like us can be rescued from sin. It's forgiveness of our sins that we might enjoy God's rest and God's presence forever. It's a better Eden. It's a return to Eden. John's gospel is very Greek. Uh, it's probably the last gospel that was written uh, sometime, somewhere around AD 70 uh, to 100 no later than 100. Uh, John is keen to spell out that Jesus is the Messiah, that his Messiahship uh, needs to be heard. He also speaks about Jesus being the incarnate Son, the one who's fully man and fully God, united together uh, in the one person. It's a very Trinitarian book that we see more fully the picture of who God is. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, but I think that John's very focused on mission. Why do I say that? Well, how does John's gospel end? Don't turn there now. We're going to go there in a minute. How does John's gospel end? What are the last, what's the last miracle in John's gospel? It's not breakfast. The fish. The miraculous catch of fish. Well done, that man. Well done. Yes, let's... Let's turn there. End of John's Gospel, John 21. The miraculous catch of fish. It's, it's kind of strange, that, isn't it, that, that John doesn't end with the resurrection like Mark and Luke do. Have a look at verse 6 in John 21. Jesus said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. He's talking about fish. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish and verse 11, Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. The end of kind of the Gospels finishes with this. It's a fishing trip. The church is to be a place that goes fishing. Jesus, in fact, is going fishing with his disciples. It's a picture of evangelism. Uh, it's for us. And this is where the rubber hits the road. If we've really understood that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the serpent crusher, well then you and I will be regularly going fishing with King Jesus. For as you and I speak about Jesus to the world, people are going to be caught for him. And they're going to want to hear more and more about King Jesus. And all kinds of people are going to be saved. Just look around this room. It's gloriously true, isn't it? All kinds of people miraculously caught by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, miraculously caught by Jesus. Now, I want us just to think uh, about these promises, again, that were made to Abraham. I said that Genesis 12 was the unconditional promises made to Abraham. God said that you'll be a great nation, I'll make your name great, that uh, you'll be blessed, that you'll have a land, and that you'll enjoy blessing. That Genesis 3 will be reversed, that you'll be back into Eden, you'll be back in the place of kind of blessing, and it's going to be far better than that. Than, than that. We saw that God's people were rescued from Egypt, from slavery, they were taken to Sinai, uh, and then at uh, at Sinai, we've got this kind of shift in, in, uh, in kind of what's happening. Now, if you obey, there'll be blessing. If you disobey, there's going to be curse.
But Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 45, actually says, God says, you will disobey. Actually, you will disobey me. So the question that I kind of want to ask is this. How can we inherit the unconditional promises, the unconditional covenant that was made to Abraham when the Mosaic covenant demands perfect obedience? I know that's a big question. How does that work? How, does, how do those two covenants work? Well, the answer could not be more thrilling. In Christ. That's how it works. Christ fulfills the demands entirely of the Mosaic law. So that you and I might have the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. Christ fulfills everything so that we can get the blessing. Jesus is the perfect Israel. He's the true son. He's the one who does what Israel must do and didn't do. He's the one who takes on all the law at Mount Sinai, all the commandments and everything. He fulfills everything. Jesus says, leave it to me. Leave it to me and I will do it. He's like Bruce Lee playing ping pong. Anyone seen Bruce Lee playing ping pong? Let me kind of show you. Hopefully this is going to work. Is this going to work? Let's see. Jesus is like Bruce Lee playing ping pong with his nunchucks. Here we go. Are we there? Do I need to click or have you got it? Okay, here we go. This is awesome. What we could never do, Jesus does for us. Look at that. It's kind of Jesus ninja skills. If you're missing this at home, you've got to watch this on YouTube. Type in Bruce Lee and ping pong. Every single law, Jesus fulfills entirely. He does it for us. Every law, perfected, fulfilled in Jesus. All of the laws. That's great, isn't it? Every commandment, perfect obedience, so that you and I might receive the full blessings of the promise made to Abraham. He's the perfect Adam. He's the true Israel. Look at, look at Romans chapter 10 with me. Romans 10 and verse 4. Romans 10 verse 4. And it says this, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You see, what the Bible is saying is this, is that Jesus is a little bit like Portsmouth Harbour train station. Okay? What can you not do at Portsmouth Harbour? You can't go any further. It's the end of the line. You've got to get off the train. Okay? It's kind of the terminus. It's the end. Jesus is the one who deals with the law. He's the end of the line. Everything is dealt with. He's the end of the law. That he might make us righteous. Those who believe in him are made perfectly right with God. Christ does the law completely. He bats it all away for us so that we can inherit all the promises. He's fully righteous. Flick back a page to Romans 8 and verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, 
God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Jesus has done it all. He was the sin offering. What Paul is saying is this. What the Bible declares, get hold of this, is that all the righteous requirements that Sinai and the law and everything demanded has been now fully met in you because of Jesus. When God looks at you, the Christian, he sees every law fully and finally met. You've got to believe that. He's kept the commandments so that you needn't have to. So you have fulfilled every commandment. Why? How? In Jesus Christ, as the people of God, in the place of God, experiencing the blessing and rest of God through Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. He died the sacrificial death for us to do this. At Sinai, we're told that we're to keep the law fully or else you'll be punished. Jesus keeps it and then he's punished. Isn't that incredible? He goes above and beyond. It's amazing. Now, um, I'm feeling quite generous. I've got a, I've got a check here that I'm going to give. Um, so you kind of, it's going to help your kind of Christmas present buying. I'm, I'm going to give it to David. There you go, David. There's a, there's a kind of check there for, for a million pounds. Okay? That's, that, that's a kind of gift from me to you. Uh, the, the lottery have helped me to kind of bring that check. Uh, it's a kind of lottery fund check for you. Um, Please don't cash it. I'll be in real trouble if you, if you tell them that it was me that gave it to you. Um, but your, your bank account has now been credited with a huge, vast sum. And that's what we get in the Lord Jesus Christ. God credits our account with righteousness. It's a gift that we're given. Our overdrawn accounts are now overflowing with the riches of the kingdom of God. Jesus has been credited to your account and it's glorious Jesus becomes your life so as the father looks at Jesus what does the father say this is my son in whom I love with him I'm well pleased so when the father looks at Susie he says to Susie this is my daughter who I love with you I'm well pleased because of Jesus when God looks at any of us here that is what he says if we're trusting in King Jesus it could not be a better story to be told to us. Jesus is always kind. I'm rarely kind. I get stuff wrong. Uh, I mess up. But when God looks at me, he sees perfect kindness because of Jesus. When, um, when I kind of... Uh, when I ask the question, kind of, am I right... Am I kind of doing things right and kind of, do I feel good about myself? Actually, I can, I can feel pretty rotten about some of the things that I do. But because of Jesus, he makes me right with God. His righteousness becomes mine. It's a gift that he gives. I can't say this enough. It's something that we need to take hold of and grab hold of. It's credited to our account. It's a blessing that we're given by King Jesus. Jesus is the serpent crusher. He's the one who's fulfilled everything for us. Mark says, the kingdom of God is near. Why? Because the kings come near. And Jesus is the king. He's the serpent crusher who fulfills Genesis 12, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and 2 Samuel 7. He's the one it's all been pointing to. He's the real deal. Well, 
Where do we see this victory? Come back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 12. Mark 1 verse 12. Jesus is the serpent crusher. And in Mark chapter 1 verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. As he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Isn't this really interesting? What's the first thing that Jesus does after he starts his ministry? He's being baptized. The Spirit sends him out into the wilderness. Jesus is cast out into the darkness. And he goes out and he does battle with the serpent. The serpent who's there in Genesis 3. And is Jesus victorious? Yes, absolutely. He's completely victorious. Unlike who? Unlike Adam. Jesus is victorious where Adam was not victorious. And this duel begins with the Son of God against the serpent. And Jesus wins the contest. And he's there, but it costs him. Uh, It costs him uh, dearly. And we're told at the end of the account of verse 13 that the angels attended him. Whatever that really means, I'm not sure. But the final fight is the really costly battle. The final fight happens at the death of Jesus Christ. And the death of Jesus is absolutely central to the coming kingdom of God. Flick forward to Colossians chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Page 1183. And we read this. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code, the law, with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus, by his death, disarms the powers and authorities as he dies. Now, I want you to imagine a huge red brick building in your mind. But it's a building that's kind of fallen into a state of repair. And um, you're kind of on a demolition team, and it's, it's your opportunity to blow up this building. Something that I've always wanted to do, to mess about with some explosives. Now, apparently, if you place explosives in kind of critical points in a building um, kind of, and you detonate the dynamite or the kind of nitroglycerin or whatever kind of explosive material you can get your hands on, apparently, if you put it in there strategically, the building will just come down. Gravity will pull the building down. But apparently, there's a moment between when you kind of push the plunger down or press the button. I kind of think the plunger kind of would would kind of feel better. But there's a moment that when you push the plunger down, the kind of explosion, the first explosion's happened. And kind of it kind of puffs out. And and kind of there's a moment where the building's still standing. But it's just about to come crumbling down. And that's what the cross achieves. It's a complete victory over Satan. Satan's like a building that's been kind of puffed out that's about to come toppling down. It's going to collapse. And that's what the cross does. It disarms the powers and authorities for us. The serpent now is about as powerful as a rotten building that's about to collapse. 
Look with me at John chapter 12, where we see this a little bit more. John 12 and verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. He'll be driven out. Amazing. Satan will be driven out by what Jesus is going to do. Romans 16. And the, uh, one of the last verses in Romans 16. Romans 16 and verse 20. Page 1143. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your foot. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. He's crushed at the cross and will be ultimately crushed at the coming of the Lord Jesus when his kingdom comes in full. The combat of the cross has achieved a comprehensive, complete, conquering victory over Satan. He's like a building that's going to collapse and the collapse is imminent. The second thing we see at the cross is that Jesus dies to take the punishment that we rightly deserve for not obeying the Mosaic covenant so that all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 can come to us as he fulfills the law for us. Look at Galatians chapter 3, just on a few pages uh, in your Bibles. Uh, Jit mentioned this scripture the other day, so I'm recycling that one. I'm sorry I'm nicking your material again, Mike. Galatians 3 and verse 10. All who, rely, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Have you done everything in the book of the law? No, absolutely not. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. Jesus Christ redeemed us. He buys us back from the curse, the curse of the law. How? By becoming the curse for us. The word redeemed is a slave market word. To be redeemed is to be bought back at a price. So um, when I was a kid, I had a really good kind of mountain bike. I loved it. It was great. It was kind of had a unique spray paint job on it that I thought was awesome. And one day I left it outside Sandown Pier and I didn't padlock it. And I was on Sandown Pier, being silly, playing on some fruit machines. And then when I eventually came out to find my push bike, it had been nicked. I was really gutted because I loved the bike. And um, a little while later it turned up that someone who lived three doors down from me called Stuart had the bike. I don't know how he got it, but he did. And I spotted it down the side of his house. It was down a little kind of narrow section down the side of his house. And I was like, that's my bike. So I did what anyone would do. I went and got my dad, because he was bigger than me, and we went and knocked on the door and said, you know, um, you've got my bike. And uh, after my dad kind of negotiated, he paid a sum of money, we bought the bike back. It was my bike. A sum of money was paid by my dad to buy the bike back for me. That's what redemption looks like. A price has been paid for us. Adam and Eve, there was a price that was paid because of their transgression, because they broke the law. And the price that's been paid is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to buy us back. We've been redeemed. We're now a new people. We're a new humanity in Jesus Christ. Now, I think there's a couple of words which has dropped out of the church's dictionary in kind of recent years, which I want to kind of bring back or encourage us to start using again. It's not gullible. Um, that one's, we've still got that one, definitely. 
It's propitiation and expiation. Don't worry, the person next to you can't spell them either. But um, I've I kind of touched on them both as we've gone through. But flick, flick forward to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 and verse 18. I hope you're not using this verse, Mike. Um, but I'm going to use it. So um, 1 Peter 3.18, page 1219. Expiation is our first word. Really, that's the complete removal of sin. Verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ died. That's the event. Every single sin you've committed today, that you committed yesterday, you committed in the past, or you will ever commit in the future, has been dealt with by Jesus. He's removed it. Uh, He's dealt with it for us. The cross is the victory that washes us clean and is the victory over all God's enemies, sin and Satan and death and hell. And the cross brings me rest and peace with God. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sin away. Well, you know how bad my singing voice is. I'm not going to sing it. I'll leave the singing to Mike. The second word that I think we need to recover is propitiation. Propitiation, really, that's Jesus dying to take the penalty for our sin, to remove God's anger at our sin. For Jesus doesn't just just die to forgive us our sin, but Jesus dies to take away the anger of God at our sin. That's amazing. So this is a law court word. We're in the dock. We've, I don't know, committed grand theft auto. The fingerprint evidence, all the evidence points to the fact that we're guilty. And just before the kind of gavel goes down, the sentence has been kind of said, it's a £20,000 fine or it's six months in prison. You can't pay the fine. You don't have the money. uh, And kind of, um, we are blatantly guilty. And someone comes into the courtroom for us and pays the money down. The fine is paid. The anger, the kind of justice that's demanded by the transgression, by the law-breaking, has been paid for. The check's handed over. Justice has been done. You and I can go free. At the cross, that's the picture that we get. The anger of God has been taken off us and diverted from us uh, onto Jesus. Jesus is a little bit like kind of Captain America's shield. He's, He's kind of diverting the anger of God off us uh, and kind of away from us. So if we're in Christ, not Captain America, we are safe. We're completely safe. The anger has been diverted. Now, um, we're in injury time, I know that. Um, Faith. Let's just briefly mention faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, we have faith not in ourselves, not in how good we are, in our best Christian day, or how bad we are in our worst Christian day. Okay? We have faith in the Lord Jesus. We come empty-handed, like the person who comes to the reception desk with the kind of electric meter key. We've got nothing that we can bring simply to the cross. We cling utterly dependent on Jesus. Um, I want to kind of just mention, I've got time for this. Let me kind of mention this. There's a kind of legend that's told in Croatia, I think. I think this comes from Croatia. 
of a servant uh, and a king. And they're kind of riding on a sled that's being pulled by dogs. It's winter time, and they're being tracked by a pack of wild dogs. And these dogs are, uh, sorry, by a pack of kind of uh, wolves. And uh, these wolves are kind of chasing them, and they're closing in, and they're going to get them. And I hadn't really realized just how ferocious wolves are until I watched the film The Grey, which was pretty scary with Liam Neeson. They've got massive heads, haven't they, kind of wolves. And um, according to this story, according to this kind of legend, uh, the wolves are gaining on this sled. And the servant of the king acts in a moment of heroism and says, I'm going to jump off the sled and they can, and they can take me. He throws himself in, in harm's way and the wolves come and they attack the servant and kill him. And the king is saved. It's an incredible moment. It's an amazing selfless act by the servant. And some have said, that's a picture of the cross. That's what the cross looks like. But actually, we want to say, no, it isn't. Not at all. If it was the cross, it would be the king who jumps off the sleigh to save the servant. And that's what King Jesus has done for each one of us. He's the servant king who jumps in harm's way, who goes out into the darkest place to deal with the darkest forces so that you and I would never have to. He's the one who rescues by dying. It's suffering to glory so that you and I can reach the eternal kingdom, which will be far greater than Eden ever was. It's going to be the perfect city, which we'll be thinking about later. Let me end with just a few words from the early church fathers about the cross of Jesus. So the Apostle John had had, had a student called Polycarp. Uh, He was around in kind of AD 69 to uh, to AD 155. He had a student called Irenaeus, and Irenaeus wrote this. Talking about Jesus, he said, he suffered shame on earth, while he is higher than all glory and praise in heaven, who, though he was crucified through weakness, he lives by by, by diving power. He who descended into the lower parts of the earth ascended into the upper parts of heaven. Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century said, We were deceived by the wisdom of the serpent, but we're freed by the foolishness of God. We made bad use of immortality, and so we died. Christ made good use of mortality, and so we live. Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century said this, this is a paraphrase, but he said, just as death entered the human race through one man's disobedience, so life is restored through another man's obedience. Just as sin, the cause of our damnation, originated from a woman, so the originator of our justification and salvation should be born of a woman. Just as the devil who defeated one man by a tree was himself defeated by another man through another tree. Do you hear what they're saying? It's all about Jesus. It's all about the cross. Let's rejoice.